You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. The shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh! A spectacular by Michael Jordan! And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the Twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome, listeners, to this Valentine's Day edition of On the NBA Beat. We're going to show some more love to the Miami Heat, who Aaron and Joshua talked about with Josh Baumgard earlier this week. One topic you guys talked about a lot during the episode was the conundrum of Hassan Whiteside, who seems to put up really big numbers, but a prevailing perception around the league, in the media, and even around other players is that some of those numbers are empty stats. Obviously, he gets huge block numbers, but the question seems to be how much does he really help the team, especially on the defensive end or his offensive contributions? Joshua, can you help us reconcile that a little bit in your mind? Hassan Whiteside is just so important to the Heat team. Without him, I think they're just a completely different team. I, I really don't agree that he puts up empty stats. Four blocks a game? What's empty about that? I don't even believe And the next guy has a 2.3 blocks per game. Yeah, I don't believe stats can be empty unless a player's putting them up when the game's not close. And the Heat play a lot of close games. And if the Heat insist on trading Whiteside because of how big of a headache he is for the for the team, they have to get someone more than Ryan Anderson. Someone like Ryan Anderson who can just stretch the floor but whose defense is terrible would make their team so much worse. And I, I just think that they would be crazy to, to make a trade for someone like Ryan Anderson. I think in my mind, the counting numbers for blocks are a little bit overrated because it's more about your impact on defense is more about changing shots than actually blocking shots. But obviously the right. the threat of white side just in the middle has such a big effect on opposing offenses. You also brought up the idea of the heat trading him. That's a big topic of discussion on the episode. What to do with him coming the trade deadline or in his impending free agency in the off season. Aaron, do you want to expound on that more? I do. I think it's a fascinating question. And first, a little bit of context where this guy came from. He was the epitome of a diamond in the rut. Yes, he is 26 years old and he will be 27 in June, but he's only started 72 games in his career, not even a full season. You look at how much he's improved just from last year alone. And so the sky's the limit really for him. He has very limited offensive range, and he's also averaging 0.3 assists in 28.2 minutes per game. He can't pass out of the double team, which is really a serious weakness for him. But I think that because the Miami Heat have such strong team defense, that's why they're good defensively when he's off the court. So I think that that's a flawed argument. I think it's a fallacy to say just because they're so good defensively when he's off the court that his defensive impact is overrated. Yes, he still has some some stuff to learn about his timing and falling for um, shot fakes and stuff like that, but 
he's so good defensively and he'll only get better. To more closely address your question, it's a huge moment in Miami's franchise and they're going to have to make a calculation. I don't know if they want to spend uh, the max on him, but he'll definitely get some team to spend the max or close to it this offseason. He's unrestricted, so even if they give him the max, he may opt to go elsewhere where uh, maybe it's a better fit. He and Spolstra sometimes don't see eye-to-eye. He hasn't been playing all the time in the fourth quarter. So it's it's that dilemma of if you want to get something for a guy, but are you willing to get a lot less than what they're worth? And they also have another decision to make with Dwayne Wade. He's on a one-year contract. What are you going to do with him? So lots of question marks. And I agree with Joshua that if you just got Ryan Anderson, and I, I forgot the exact trade. It was a two-for-one that, that Josh Baumgard mentioned. Luol Deng and Hassan Wedge. Yeah, so you're giving up two good players. And and so I, I don't like that trade at all for Miami. But we'll see what happens. Pat Riley, as Josh said in the interview, he always has the will to pull a, a big move. And... He's been willing to mortgage the the future for the present. So if he gets a guy that is a veteran that's already completely developed and adds it to a core of of Goran Dragic and Justice Winslow, keeps Wade, maybe adds another solid veteran, maybe he's willing to trade Whiteside. But um, I I think that if they keep Whiteside, they're going to go out, go all out and try to re-sign him and not lose him for completely nothing. Yeah, you brought up a lot of good points in that answer. I I think yeah. a lot of the perception of the idea that he puts up, he maybe puts up empty stats or doesn't help as much as it looks like on the box score might come from the fact that, as you said, this meteoric rise seemed to come out of nowhere for the last two years. We remember that he was almost out of the league. He got he got cut by a few teams. He was struggling to make rosters. So. It'll be really interesting how the Heat handle him at the trade deadline and in the offseason. Moving on, another guy you mentioned that the Heat have a decision to make with is Wade. And according to Josh Baumgard, he'd like to see a little bit less reliance on Wade for the Miami Heat, especially in the offense, in that he'd like to, them to rely a little bit more on Dragic, a little bit more on Bosch, and the less on Wade, who's who's getting up there in years. Joshua, do you really believe that less is more with Wade? That seems to go against the common sense perception of it, especially with Wade making an all-star team again this year. I really do believe that less is more with Wade. Last season, it seemed like Coach Spolstra wouldn't even call plays um, at the end of games. He would just say, Dwayne, here's the ball, go do something with it. And a lot, they lost a lot of close games because Dwayne Wade would just shoot at the end. He'd isolate and shoot. And he's not the, the one-on-one star that he used to be that can just score at will at the end of game. Towards the end of last season when the team started having success finishing, it's when he started distributing. So I don't think necessarily he needs to have fewer minutes. I just think he needs to shoot less. Goran Dragic could be the beneficiary of those those extra shot attacks. I think that a lot of it is also about ball handling and usage rate. So that that makes sense that Goran Dragic was brought in 
to play the point, to make an impact at that position. He's averaging 5.3 assists per game, but the ball is not in his hands as much as you would hope. And so I think that's one area where Wade could let go a little bit. And that's kind of um, also what he was talking about in the Ginobili role to some extent. Go in a corner. I mean, Ginobili handles the ball a lot. He gets a lot of assists. But he also just spots up sometimes in the corner. And the the um, Spurs' great ball movement finds him. I think that Wade, um, his shooting could improve if he's dribbling less. It'll definitely help him get injured less often. And he's 34 or so, and he gets injured every season. As much as I hate to bring that up, it's been the case over the last five. He's been healthy so far, but putting the ball more in Drogic's hands can only help Wade stay healthy. The thing that I disagree with the most, though, that Josh said was that he would like Bosch to increase his field goal attempts from something like 14 and a half to about 19 per game. I think that's a little bit excessive. That would signal a significant shift with the heat offense. I think maybe more like 16 or so is more realistic because um, Bosch is an efficient guy. He gets his points regardless. He doesn't really need to shoot that much. And they have a lot of capable players. I don't think you need to force it um, and change so much offensively to get him that many more shots. I think the the biggest thing that, that Wade has done to make himself a lot more efficient, even though his field goal percentage is lower than it was last season and way lower than two seasons ago where he was shooting almost 55%, he's shooting about 46 this season, is he's one of the worst three-point shooters in the league who consistently has shot threes in his career, this season he's only attempting 0.6 per game. That's down from 1.6 last season. So that's that's really good for the team that Wade is shooting fewer three-pointers because he just doesn't do well from that. He's only shooting 22% from three this season. He's a career 28.7 three-point percent shooter. I never realized it was that bad. Yeah, last season. Um, toward the end of games when Spolstra was just letting him isolate, he would do this move and then shoot a three from the top of the key, and he never made them. He was never even close. <laughs> so I'm glad he's not doing that. Regarding Dragic's role, in my opinion, this is the second season that he's had a little bit of struggles playing alongside another ball-dominant guard. Last season in Phoenix... He had a down season by his estimation when he was playing with Isaiah Thomas and Eric Bledsoe, and that's a large reason why they made the trade to send him to Miami. And with Wade, he's getting older, but I I still think he's effective. It's not like a Kobe situation to me. So yeah, not even close to that. Yeah, it's it's definitely not like that. I'm glad right. you brought so, that up. I don't want people to think that we're comparing the situations in any way. I don't even think it's like a Ginobili situation because Wade Wade is way better and can play a lot more at this stage of his career than Ginobili, I think. I know. I think he was just bringing the comparison to more of a Ginobili-like role where he comes off the bench potentially, which I don't know if I agree with. But and, Yeah, I, uh, I don't even agree with that. And handles the ball less and, and kind of just like to emphasize the less is more argument. Right. I see the advantage in playing in more, in more times, maybe off the bench, where 
he and Dragic aren't on the floor at the same yeah, time because it seems like their skills sort of overlap sometimes. Regarding Bosch, I agree with you, Aaron, that maybe 19 shots per game is too much because you're right that he's so effective in being efficient in the offense and getting his points wherever he needs to. But last week, he had a calf injury, and he's undergoing further tests now for a lingering issue on that. While he's out, what do you think the Heat can do to to stay mm-hmm. off uh, the time for waiting for him to get back? Josh McRoberts has not been playing well, but they'll give him more of a look, and maybe he'll crack the starting lineup at some point if he proves to Spolstra that he can play well. You don't want to start Amare Sotomayor and Hassan Whiteside. The range just wouldn't be there, and defensively, I don't, I don't know that it would work. I think that, that McRoberts would probably start um, getting the start, but they're going to have to figure something out with him because he has not looked comfortable since he's returned from injury. Chris Bosch is a guy you really miss if he's out for an, an extended amount of time. Yeah, you just hope for the Miami Heat's sake that they'd be able to tread water while he's out. He's their MVP on their team, so... And in this crowded East, you need every win that you can get. So I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to add that it's a shame also that where his NBA career started, he had to miss the All-Star festivities. I mean, he went. he's still there and enjoying it, but he was going to play in the game and compete in the three points. So that's a little disappointing, but he made the smart professional decision to rest his body and do right by his team. I want to allude to something that Josh Baumgart said during the interview. I really don't think it matters where the Heat finish in the East standings in the regular season because this team, with all the veterans and players they have who've been deep in the playoffs and been champions, the, the they're not a regular season team. They just need to be healthy for the playoffs. And I think if they are, they can beat anyone in the East who's not the Cavaliers. Josh actually did say that, and I agree. They match up well with every other team, and they may be old, but this team can can get to the Eastern Conference Finals. It's important, as Aaron said, that Chris Boss just stay healthy. Yeah, that's a really good point, Josh. They're a playoff team, as you said, and they'll be a team to watch come April or May. And that's all for our Miami Heat segment. Stay tuned for our next bit where Joshua and I will take you through our favorite moments from All-Star Weekend so far. Now that the All-Star break is here, Lauren, what would you think about All-Star Saturday night? I really thought it was one of the best All-Star Saturdays in a long time that we've seen in terms of entertainment. Starting off with the Skills Challenge, this year, as we all know, they introduced big men into the Skills Challenge, and I thought that introduced a really interesting wrinkle because you saw in the final round when it was Carl Anthony Towns and Isaiah Thomas, that Carl Anthony Towns 
really was trying hard, really wanted to represent the big men well against the guards, show that they have as many skills as them. And when he ended up winning, all the other big men contestants were so happy for him. DeMarcus Cousins especially jumped up and gave him a hug. It was a great moment. That was that just kicked off the excitement. Yeah, Lauren, I love the the new dynamic for the skills competition. Love having big guys in there. It just showcases how the the NBA has so many really good good young skilled bigs. And um Draymond Green before the competition guaranteed victory for a big man. He didn't say that he would win. But he guaranteed that a big would win, and he was right. Another thing about the new format that I really liked was that when players were going to he- going head to head, they were shooting on the same basket. So right. it kind of introduced a knockout type feel, where players had to alter the arc of their shot, and it was strategic when you want to shoot. It made it more of a a one on one game rather than two sides of the court where you have to you can't really watch both at the same time. Yeah, I definitely like the one on one format better than how it was before, uh, more than two years ago when it was just basically just time. time trials, right? Yeah. Definitely in this format when they're racing against each other, these guys are competitive. They don't want to lose. So when you actually put them head to head against each other they there's definitely a, a bit more competition between the people, especially with the bigs. And also, I think you could see it with Isaiah Thomas with him making it to the finals since I think he, he always has a underdog complex because of his height. So you could see he was going hard all of the way too. The three-point contest was also crazy, especially at the end, the competition between the Splash Brothers. Did you watch that? Joshua. Oh yeah, I most certainly did, and I I loved it. I was hoping that that JJ Redick would um get into the the final round, but the fact that Devin Booker was there just shows how tremendous of a shooter he is, and it also showcased his clutch ability. He only had twelve up until the final rack in the first round, and then he made four of of the five money balls, I believe to even give himself a chance at making the final. And then he advanced um, beyond James Harden and J.J. Reddick. So it was cool that he was there. Really amazing that Clay Thompson would beat Stephen Curry after Curry put up 23, um, a really great showing. But it just shows how tremendous these, these Golden State Warriors are. It's amazing that, that these two shooters are on the same team. It was really nerve-wracking, actually, with three people in the first round, James Harden, J.J. Redick, and Devin Booker, all putting up 20s. And then also in that first round, Steph Curry got off to a little bit of a slow start and caught fire on his final rack to end up with 21 to get into that final. Yeah, he Curry, if he didn't make that last shot, that last money ball, he would have finished with 19 and wouldn't have made the final round. Right. Devin Booker, I feel like he, it was a little bit unfortunate for him because it was a great story. Obviously, he's the youngest competitor ever in the three point contest at 19. But because he had to shoot that 30 second three point off to break the tie between him, Reddick, and Harden, I think his final round, he was a little bit tired because he had to go directly after that. 
And then, obviously, we saw Steph Curry put up a great round of 23, and then Clay Thompson just one-up him with the amazing round of 27. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. I think you, you make a good point about Devin Booker being tired, but at the same time, you ran into a buzzsaw against Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson, in my opinion, and probably most people would agree, the two best shooters in the NBA right now. So no shame in, in Devin Booker's game finishing third behind those guys. Right, and he'll be back. It's his rookie season. The three-point contest has a lot to do with technique also, so he'll be back. He'll He'll do well in future years, I assume. The dunk contest was probably one of the best contests we've seen in the last decade, at least. The competition between Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine, each of them bringing out dunks that we've never seen before. What was your favorite dunk of that, Joshua? My favorite dunk of the competition belonged to Aaron Gordon. The one where he went under his leg over the mascot, and threw it down with his left hand. That was my favorite. What about yours? Aaron Gordon, I think, had probably three of my favorite dunks of the competition. Same. The one you alluded to. There was also his first one, actually, with the mascot, where he jumps over the mascot on the hoverboard and puts it through his legs. The other one where he's doing the 360 Carl Malone mailman dunk with his arm behind his head was insane. I, the uh, the timing and coordination that you have to have to do that type of thing, it's unfathomable to me. And this is not to take anything away from Zach Levine. A lot of people are saying that Zach Levine's championship was undeserved and Aaron Gordon got robbed. But you look at Zach Levine's dunks, you would never expect someone to say a between the legs from the free throw line was not deserving of a dunk contest win, right? That's a good point. I will say that I am very upset that Aaron Gordon did not win the contest, but at the same time, I'm not upset that Zach Levine did. I would not have been disappointed if they they named them co-champions, but Zach Levine had some tremendous dunks. It's just that we're kind of spoiled seeing Levine do th- these types of things last year. And I wanted to see Aaron Gordon win because of these amazing dunks. But I think the the last round where he got a 47, that should have been another perfect score. That that dunk, when I first saw it live, I thought, okay, um, it wasn't amazing. But then on replay, it's just ridiculous the, what he was able to do. Bringing the ball down and back up. and Yeah, that dunk, he he catches it off the bounce, I think, and then he hits it against his back, sort of like a tomahawk, and then brings it all the way down between his legs and then brings it back up for a dunk. And and the dunk had power. He gets up so high. Yeah, so much power. I think the judges probably penalized him a little bit because... The thing is, since the dunk contest went into double overtime, as they say, I think Aaron Gordon sort of ran out of ideas. So the first two tries on that dunk, he was trying to do a thing where he passes off the shot clock, and he couldn't get that to work. And after that, he resorted to that plan Plan B dunk, which was amazing still to see, and probably would have won any other dunk contest other than this. 
yeah, next year should be interesting. I, I wonder if Zach Levine will be back to defend and try to win a, a third straight uh, title. We know Aaron Gordon should be back. He definitely wants to avenge his loss this year, I would hope. And hopefully he brings out even... He, he said in his post-contest interview that if he knew it was going to... If he knew the contest was going to be this close, he would have thought of more dunks. And we already saw how creative he was during this. So, Lauren, what do you think is a big story coming out of this All-Star Weekend? Well, I think there were two main themes from this All-Star Weekend. First of all, since it was in Toronto, there was a big celebration of Canada. Really let everyone know that Canadian basketball is on the map. And related to that, one thing we saw with Zach Levine winning the dunk contest, Carl Anthony Towns winning the skills competition, and Zach Levine also winning the MVP of the Rising Stars game, we saw a coming out party for these young Timberwolves. Last year, Andrew Wiggins also won the MVP of the Rising Stars game. It just showed us that that team has a lot of young talent who are going to be good for a long time. I just want to say you're right about the Minnesota Timberwolves being a very promising up and coming team. Carl Anthony Towns, I think, is the key. His defense is, is really, really going to help them turn that corner. Because last year they had a lot of scorers, but their defense was pitiful. It's, it's definitely getting better. And I just want to say um, it was an amazing All Star weekend, not even factoring in the All Star game yet. And the competitions were great. A lot of fun. I think the NBA did a great job um, with who they selected to be in each of the competitions this season. Hopefully next season's even better. Yeah, that's what you hope. We're recording this before the All-Star game. It'll be released during or after the game, but I hope it's as exciting as that format can be. I hope it serves as a nice send-off to Kobe in his final All-Star appearance, too. And finally, I hope you listeners have a nice Valentine's Day and that you've enjoyed All-Star Weekend as much as we have. Thanks for listening.